Okay. We left Jonah on the outskirts of which city? Nineveh. What was he doing? He was still steaming, wasn't he? Uh, you know, the story, it does, I think it has an unspoken ending. Um, I was talking to Kevin about this, what he thought after he preached on him last week. How did we get Jonah's story? Well, it was revealed by God. It's the inspired word of God. We don't know who gave it to us, but I have a sneaking suspicion it was probably who. It's probably Jonah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was any of the Ninevites. Okay. And he may have passed it on to somebody else that wrote it down, but it was probably Jonah. So I think that somehow Jonah came to an aha moment later. I want to I want to think that he did anyway. Think better of him. So what happened after that? It's the time of Jeroboam II, probably, and uh, Israel was in a period of economic prosperity. They were in an alliance with Syria, and um, they were holding their own for a while, but we know eventually what happened. The Assyrians invaded, and they defeated Damascus, and they eventually took Samaria, and they scattered all of the northern ten tribes, the, quote, lost ten tribes of Israel. And then they imported folks from beyond the Jordan into the population there and intermarried them with the ones that were left. And, of course, that's the basis then for the beginning of what we would call Samaria then in the time of Christ. So the northern Israel, Israel, What's the other tribal name that's given to that throughout a lot of the prophets? Ephraim. Yeah, Ephraim, Israel. Sometimes it's referred to as Jacob. That is no longer. Uh, and the good news is now, Assyria has fallen. Nineveh fell in 612, the Babylonian Median army under Nabopolassar and Xerxes, who was a a Median king, then um, destroyed Nineveh. And we find that account in which prophet? Nahum. In Nahum's book, in Nahum 2 and 3, it prophesied ahead of time that that was going to happen. Not by name, but by, by incident. And Assyria has fallen, 609 B.C., three years later. The Battle of Haran, Asher Ubalit, the last king of the Assyrian Empire, fell to the Babylonian Median Army, Joint Alliance. And we find this prophesied in three places in Isaiah, the destruction of Assyria, and then in which other prophet? One of the Z prophets. Take a guess. There are two of them back to back. Zephaniah and Zechariah, which one are you going to take? Let's take Zephaniah, okay? Zephaniah too. <laughs> and the reason for that is, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are all at the same time, and they're post-exilic prophets. You know, the, the joke with me and Samuel is when they have their, if they have a, a third son coming up, he's going to be, then what? He's going to be Haggai, yeah. And for those of you that don't know, they already have the Zechariah and Malachi part uh, nailed down. And the good news is Babylonia has fallen. Um, Belshazzar we heard uh, last week, uh, I think it was last week. Was it last week or was it the week before? 
was a week before. Yeah, you're, it's hard for you to remember, right, Chris? Yeah. He made mention to mini, mini, tikal, ufar, sin. And then Daniel has interpreted that for Belshazzar and said that what has happened in Daniel 5, that you have been weighed in the balance and you have been found what? Inadequate, deficient. And that very night, Belshazzar was killed. And uh, Darius, and this isn't Darius the Great, okay? When you read about Darius in Daniel 6 and the lion's den and all, it's not there. And, and Chris made that very obvious. It's not Darius the Persian king. It is a Darius that is of rather obscure background. We don't see him in secular history anywhere. But we think that he's probably an intermediate ruler there under Cyrus's control there in uh, Babylonia. And we find the destruction of Babylonia explicitly and extensively recorded ahead of time. Isaiah 13 and 21, two times. He didn't just prophesy once, but twice. But, but Jeremiah, probably the longest, I didn't count this up, but I suspect it's the longest prophecy against any nation by any prophet. Uh, it's 104 verses long, chapters 50 and 51. It takes five and a half pages for Jeremiah to vent himself about what's going to happen to Babylonia. And it did. So, what's Judah's situation now? They have been taken into captivity. Jeremiah prophesies this himself. We know that it's going to be 70 years. Jeremiah 25, and then again in Jeremiah 29. They are going to go into exile, or the period of captivity. However we define that, it's going to be 70 years. And it's confirmed at the very end of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36. That they were in captivity 70 years. What happened, there were three waves of captivity that left Israel. Well, when I say Israel, I'm talking about Judah. In 607, the first deportation took place by the Babylonians under the uh, influence of the Babylonian king by the aristocratic rulers, some of the aristocratic rulers, but not the king. And then in 605, because Jehoiakim would, uh, was resistant to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he besieged Jerusalem, and Jehoiakim then decided to pay tribute. And not long after that, he reversed his field, and Nebuchadnezzar took him off the throne and put Jehoiakim on the throne. So this would be the first siege of Jerusalem. Then he relinquished on the siege, and then ten years later, when, uh, well, eight years later, when um, the king, when Jehoiakim then uh, resisted the Babylonian suzerainty, there was a second deportation. And that's when Jehoiakim is taken into captivity, and Zedekiah was put on the throne, and that there's a second group of exiles in Babylonia. And then finally, when Zedekiah rebelled against the Babylonians, we know that in 586, Nebuchadnezzar then came in, and over a period of about a year and a half or so, they dismantled Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, burned uh, the temple, destroyed the temple, hauled off all the gold and the silver and all the utensils from the temp temple. And the third and the final deportation took place. So three deportations, um, the last of which is the one that everybody thought was going to be final. But of course, the prophets said that's not the case. So let's calculate the 70 years for just a moment. How, did the, how do we know? The, what, what did Jeremiah mean? Well, one way of calculating it is this. The first deportation, I said, was in 607. What we do know is then that after Cyrus's decree, the first remnant came back about a year after that. 
He decreed it in 538. They began to return in 537. 607 minus 537 is what? 70 years. There's another way to calculate it. And that is the destruction of the temple occurred about, well, the destruction of Jerusalem began in 587. It could have lasted until 586. And the completion of the second temple was in the year 515 or 516. So say 516 to 586 is how many years? 70 years. So there are a couple of ways of calculating it. We're not exactly sure what Jeremiah meant by this, but there are two ways to verify it. And then Cyrus has decreed, the account of this is given at the end of Second Chronicles, and it's the very beginning of the book that we're looking at tonight, Ezra. The decree from Cyrus in 538, allowing the return of the remnant. And it's recorded in verse 23 at the end of chapter 36 and verses 2 through 4. So let me read. And the reason I did not have it, just one verse tonight was because I'm going to be looking at about three, pass, three or four passages. Ezra 1, 2 through 4. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Isn't that a phenomenal thing for a pagan king to say? Wow. And then he goes on to say, and he is in Jerusalem, and he is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may, God, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. That's the second time where he's located God there. Okay. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Once again, he's located this God where? In Jerusalem. God has spoken to Cyrus, and this had been prophesied by Isaiah 150 years previously. Isn't that amazing? And this wasn't just a general prophecy. It was by name. Mm. So we look at the book of Ezra. The word Ezer or Ezer in Hebrew means help. So probably the idea is Jehovah helps. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were linked together in one book. And they were a continuation of Chronicles. All of that was one history. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah together. It isn't explicitly stated in Ezra who wrote the book, but it's pretty obvious. The Talmud attributes it to Ezra, and there are portions of the book that are written in the first person about what Ezra does. And it has a priestly emphasis in the book, and Ezra was a priest. There's no question about that. And we know later from history that Ezra had access to Nehemiah's library and the documents there. And it was probably Ezra then that used that documentation probably to write the Chronicles and then the first six chapters of Ezra from the historical accounts before he got there. He was of priestly heritage. He descended from Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, through not Nadab or Abihu, fortunately, but through Eleazar, and then from Eleazar through Phinehas, about whom we spoke uh, two or three weeks ago, who ran the spear through the, the idolaters, and then through Zadok. He studied and practiced and taught law. He was an educated scribe, and he was a contemporary of Nehemiah. We know this, who uh, came a little bit later. 
When did he go to Jerusalem? Well, 457. So this doesn't jive then with the remnant returning because the remnant returned in 537, 536. Well, it does because it's not the first remnant. It's what? It's the second remnant that comes under uh, Ezra. And he did this with the support of King Artaxerxes. In the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes, the third son of Xerxes I, and a descendant of the, not the lineage, but the aristocracy of Cyrus. He was the third uh, king of Persia. Artaxerxes' decree then was issued uh, a bit later, and it decreed then the second return of the exiles. And you find that decree in chapter 7, verses 12 through 26. There are actually three decrees that are spoken about in the book of Ezra. One is by Cyrus. One is by Darius, the Persian king, and then one is by Artaxerxes, who comes after Cyrus and, and, and uh, Darius. According to Jewish tradition, Ezra helped to start the great synagogue, and there 120 Jewish scholars had gathered uh, with several prophets in the post-exilic period, and there were three that we've already identified in that time. Along with Ezra, there was who? Who did we mention? Haggai? Zechariah and Malachi. And so you see, the story today brings us to the end of the Old Covenant, doesn't it? And he formally identified the Old Testament canon, and some say that he was the one that was responsible for collecting it all together and editing it into its, uh, not current form, but into its Old Testament form. Under him, synagogue worship was organized, and a liturgy was developed. So what's the scope of Ezra and Nehemiah together, that old book? When you look at Ezra 1 through 6, generally, it's speaking about then the first remnant and the rebuilding of the temple. Now I say generally, there's an insertion there that is an exception. Ezra 1 through 4 verse 5 is all a unit. And then there's an interruption there. Um, it talks about the return of the exiles, the remnant, and then the beginning of the building of the temple, and then a suspension. And then Ezra does something very interesting here. He does what historians do a lot of times. He does, there's a parenthetic kind of an account that he gives in chapter 4 from chapters, verses about 6, 7 to the end of the chapter. And he really brings something from the future, his time, back in as a kind of explanation about how, how they had been resisted. And this is a parenthetic account of what had happened to him uh, under Xerxes and Artaxerxes. And he talks there about a letter that was sent to Artaxerxes that was complaining about the rebuilding of, not the temple, but of the city. And that this had caused some frustration and problems. That was just a further amplification of what was happening then in the time of uh, Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple. And it just amplifies this problem that much more. My point is this. They talk about the beginning of the uh, return of the remnant the beginning of the building of the temple. Then they ran into some resistance from the basically Samaritans. And then there is a re resuming of the building of the temple in chapter 5. And then it finishes in chapter 6. The next part of Ezra is chapter 7 through 10. This res resumes the story about mm, two generations later in 457 with the return of the second remnant under Ezra. It deals with two issues, the last four chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10. The rebuilding, not of the temple, that's already happened. 
but the rebuilding of the city. And you see, that is what caused the people some concern that he talks about in chapter 4. The officials have been very concerned about that. And then it also deals with the spiritual restoration of the remnant that returns a second time. And then Nehemiah, part of that original book, is later. He arrives on the scene in 444 and uh, is current until about 425. And it deals with rebuilding, not of the temple, not of the city, but of the what? The wall, the wall to defend Jerusalem. And you see, that is what they had been complaining about when they wrote Artaxerxes. They did not want the Jews to have a city with a fortified wall, you see. If you, do, if you let them do that, then guess what they're going to do? They're going to build their own defenses, and they're not going to pay their tribute, and they're going to rebel. Hmm. And eventually, they did, but not against the Persians. The date of the composition is probably sometime after Ezra arrives there in uh, Jerusalem in the second return and before the arrival of Nehemiah, and then later Nehemiah's uh, account takes care of that. The purpose of the book is twofold. To talk about the rebuilding of the temple, number one, and its significance for us in the scarlet thread. And then the restoration of the second remnant that also brings reformation to the people that are living there. The storyline goes something like this. It begins at the end of Second Chronicles. If you want to see the beginning of the story in Ezra, look at the last uh, verse of Second uh, Chronicles. Because it's mirrored in the first part of Ezra, which we read. And it describes a second exodus in two waves, very much like they had come out of Egypt now. Israel comes out of Babylon to, uh, uh, to, to Judah. The first remnant returned in chapters 1 through 2. Who was the leader of this remnant? He was a governor appointed by the Persian king. Another Z word. Zerubbabel. He was governor of Judea from 538 onward. And his purpose, Cyrus said significant, uh, specifically, is I'm sending you to do what? To rebuild this temple of your God. Isaiah had prophesied that by name in Isaiah 40, uh, 44. I said 48 a minute ago, but I meant 44. And it was not only Cyrus that was named by the decree, but also it said explicitly in the account that not just the people are going to return, but that the foundation of the temple was going to be laid at that time. The distance from Babylonia to Jerusalem is probably about 900 miles. How many people returned? Well, exactly, it's about 50,000, okay. But exactly, he tells us, 49,897 people in chapter 2. How many exiles were there? We, we're not sure. But the estimates are that there may have been 2 to 3 million Jews living in the Babylonian Empire in exile this time. So 50,000 people sounds like a lot. But not when you compare it to the size of the exile. It's only about 2 to 3%. So when we talk about remnant folks, we're talking about scrap. <laughs> we're talking about a small piece of, of cloth there. Actually, it was 42,560, my notes say. Israelites, and 7,337 what? Slaves that accompanied them. The tribes that returned were Judah and Benjamin and part of the tribe of whom? The Levites. They needed what? They needed priests. Exactly. The rebuilding of the temple then occurs from chapters 3 to 6. 
The first thing that they did after they worshiped was they restored the altar. The foundation of it is given then. About two years after the decree in 536, the foundation was laid in chapter 3. And I'm going to read that passage in a moment and do a short exposition of it. And then they, there was a suspension of the building. So when you come to chapter 4, there was a resistance by those that were inhabitants of the land, and they'd intermarried and all of that, and Zerubbabel would not let them do it because they were not of pure Jewish blood. That wasn't the real issue. The real issue was that they had married idolatrous mates, and they were maintaining their idolatry. And he would have nothing to do with that. And so there was that problem. And then Ezra explains that there was this whole ethos of resistance even when he was about to come. And that's the rest of chapter 4. And then Haggai and Zechariah came and prophesied. And they said, listen, folks, God's called us to finish his work here. And he, they encouraged the people to start the rebuilding in chapter 5. And the work renewed under Zerubbabel, under the governor, and the high priest that came out of the line of Zadok. His name was Jeshua or Joshua. And then there was resistance to the, um, uh, the rebuilding of the temple. There was a suspension. Uh, Tatanai, the Persian governor and overseer, challenged the existence. This is a few years after Cyrus now. And he challenges the existence of Cyrus's decree. And for 14 years, there was a suspension. And then finally, some of the leaders then wrote to Darius and wished for the work to begin again and asked for him to do, have his scholars do the research and see whether or not they weren't authorized to do it. And in fact, they determined from the records that Cyrus had issued this decree in 538. Darius then issues a second decree. Darius is the third king after Cyrus. And he ordered Tatanai not only to let it happen, but he ordered Tatanai to support it. And not just to support it, but to support it with gold and silver and enough money to do the sacrifices and to maintain the priests. This is coming from a pagan king, folks. And the temple was then completed about 515, 516 in the spring and the transition of that year from 516 to 515. The 3rd of Adar, the 3rd of March, and the 6th year of Darius's reign. So the interlude that occurs then after chapter 6 and then to chapter 7 in Ezra is 58 years. What other story happens in Persia during that interim where the Jews almost were persecuted, almost exterminated until a queen, the queen of King Xerxes, intervened? Esther. That happens during this time. And then chapter 7, there's a second remnant that returns. There had been resistance by local authorities. They were concerned about the rebuilding of the city. But then finally, Artaxerxes then says, no, we're going to let this, this second remnant return. And um, this then began in chapter 7. Ezra brought back 1,754 heads of families. How many accompanied them? We don't know. 258 Levites, 1,496 males. The date was 457. It was in the seventh month of Artaxerxes, the seventh year, the fifth month. So put this in historical perspective. This was about 81 years after the arrival of Zerubbabel, okay? And it was 58 years after the completion of the temple. But there needed to be a reformation amongst the people, and we believe that is why God sent the second remnant. Artaxerxes then decrees in chapter 7, 
from the supply of the royal treasury, money and supplies for the temple and for the offerings, granted to the priests and the Levites and the singers and the doorkeepers tax exemption, <laughs> and he gave them authority to govern the people in their own province and to teach the law. This came from a third pagan king. And then we see in chapters 9 and 10 a reformation of the people because Ezra discovered to his dismay when he read the law that they were in violation of the law, that there were some of those that had returned that were beginning to intermarry. And he said, that is against the law. And so they confessed their sin, they repented, and there was a spiritual revival and they pledged to put away their pagan mates, renounce their marriages and live by God's law. And that's where the book of Ezra ends. It's not where the Old Covenant ends, of course, you know. That we have all the prophets that come after Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs. We have all the prophets that come after that. But actually, Ezra's account and Nehemiah's account comes at the time of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So what are the themes that run through this? And then I want to look very briefly at a text. One of these comes out of, and I draw this from Wearsby's commentary. I like the way he emphasizes here, the good hand of God. He says there's six times, and there are, where that phrase is used in one form or another. Sometimes it's the good hand of the Lord. Sometimes it's the hand of the Lord. But he draws it from Ezra 7, 9. And this really does describe what happens in the whole book of Ezra. Ezra 7, 9 says this, For on the first, of the first month he began to go up from Babylon, that is Ezra. And on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. And that tells the story of Ezra. It captures the idea of God's constant grace and care for Israel. How was God's hand upon them? Well, he kept his promises, didn't he? Three promises that we see very clearly kept here. There would be a restoration of the remnant, and that happened. There would be the continuation of the eternal covenant, and that continued. And there would be the rebuilding of the what? Of the temple. The restoration of the remnant was prophesied in Isaiah 10 and 11. We talked about this about three weeks ago. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 29, chapter, chapters 30 and 31. Remnant, remnant, remnant. And Ezekiel 11. Jeremiah 29 puts it this way. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. You can't get any more explicit than that. You see, this occurred as a miraculous restoration of Israel that came out of what Isaiah talked about. There's a stump there, and the stump looks like it's dead. But out of this dead stump is going to come a what? It's going to come the seed that is going to spring forth. That seed will be the remnant. He kept his eternal covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7. Zerubbabel, the first governor then of this territory and the remnant, was a direct descendant of David. He was the grandson of Jeconiah. That's what it says in the Old Testament account. But Jeconiah was another name for whom? For Jehoiakim that had been exiled to Babylonia. And he was the son of Shealtiel. So he was the son of the next, next to the last king of Judah. And we see this perpetuation of the covenant through him. And of course, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 11, that there will be a righteous branch that comes out of both the what? 
the root and the, and the shoot of Jesse. And then thirdly, he, his good hand was on them in, in fulfilling the promise of rebuilding the temple. We've already said Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 44. God's hand secondly was on them through his sovereign work through pagan kings. I think this has been obvious. Cyrus's decree to return the first remnant. Darius's decree after the work of the temple has stopped. And he said, it better start again. They better finish it. And Artaxerxes' decree then that supported and protected the return of the second remnant. God's hand was also, his good hand was on them in providing resources. You know, the account that I read said that Cyrus told the, the Jews, you know, take free will offerings and all of that and then support the remnant that's going to return. But Cyrus himself contributed to this. When you look at the first chapter, he took all of the gold and the silver and the plateware and the utensils that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar out of the old temple, which was a sign of this great victory over Israel, which had been stored in Babylonia, and he did what? He returned it. 5,400 pieces of gold and silver of incalculable value. So the wealth and the riches, but the utensils for the, for the temple. But there's another thing going on here. This was a concession. You see, these were trophies of war. These were trophies of victory. And what Cyrus was saying, you can have them back, okay? You're still under my suzerainty. You're still under my control. But this is going to be a time of what? peace. Darius allowed provincial taxes to be collected from the royal treasury, and he said then, when he told Tatnai to start the work up again, he said, the full cost of the temple is going to be paid out of the treasury. That's amazing. He provided money for the animals, for the wheat, the salt, the wine, the oil, for the sacrifices. This is a pagan king. This is a sovereign, good hand of God at work. Artaxerxes, gave gold and silver as an offering to the God of Israel. And he supported the temple sacrifices with money and animals and grain. And he supplied more for the utensils of the temple. And he paid extra money for the priest and all for the second remnant that returned. So God's good hand was working to provide resources. You know what it reminds me of? In the first Exodus, I just thought about this. Did God do a very similar thing? Through whom? The Israelites despoiled the Egyptians as they left, and God provided them with the resources that they needed. And then finally, God's hand was on them in protecting and leading the remnant. This is a relatively small remnant, folks. Only 2 to 3% of the population. But God protected them. And he provided leadership of Haggai and Zechariah to then spur them on to continue the rebuilding. He provided the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua to give the leadership to oversee the rebuilding of the temple. He provided a second remnant for this specific purpose. He needed a people that would listen to the law and restore and reform the people there in the land. And he used Artaxerxes to protect them. Artaxerxes said this, you better not harm these folks that are returning. And he protected them against attack from anybody, including the local officials that had complained and had been complaining all along. So let me do a brief exposition of a text and draw some summaries. Ezra 3, verses 8 through 13. Now in the second year, this is the foundation, laying the foundation. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of, the, of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of uh, Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites 
from 21 years or 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua with his sons and his brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad, and their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen of the temple of God. And when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, the good hand of God. For his righteous, his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud with joy. So that the people could not distinguish the shout of joy from the shout of weeping of the people. For the, shout, the people shouted with a loud shout and the, sh the sound was heard far away. This incident about the laying of the... I've just chose this one. There are many instances in Ezra that we could use to look at the, the scarlet thread. But I chose it for about three or four reasons. You know, look at the background. The laying of this foundation was very similar to the laying of the first temple in the respect that it happened then in the second month. That was the same month that Solomon had started the building of the, of the first temple. There were a couple of reasons. Number one, it was the dry season, and it was an ideal time to build. But a second was that it occurred after the first month. The second month usually does occur after the, second, after the, first, the, the first month. Yeah. But what's significant about that? What great event occurs in the first month? The feast of unleavened bread and the what? The Passover. You see, they were determined that they were going to celebrate the second exodus before they started the building of the temple. They would observe the Passover. And this was parallel with what Israel did. Israel celebrated before they went across and then they attacked Jericho. They did what? They not only were circumcised, but they also celebrated the Passover. There's a continuity, too, here. You see the sons of Asaph that are mentioned here. David had put together many well-regulated and vast orders of, of worship and musical instruments in 1 Chronicles 16 and 1 Chronicles 25, and it's making reference to that. And there's a continuity here in verse number 11. It paraphrases Psalm 105, for he is good. For his mercy, his loving kindness is upon Israel to, uh, forever. Well, what was that psalm commissioned for? What did David write it for? He wrote it for the return of the ark that was put in the temple. And it was sung then at the dedication of the first temple under Solomon. So you see what's going on here. There is a continuity of liturgy and worship and praise and a celebration of the prophecy being fulfilled by Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah himself in Jeremiah 33, 11 says that this very song is going to be sung with joy when Jerusalem is restored. So you see a thread running there from the past to that current time. What we see here is that there was a priority on what? Not building, but a priority on what? Not on building, but what? Worship. 
Worship comes first. We honor God not with our buildings, but with our what? With our worship. You see, they, they built the altar and they sacrificed first before they laid the foundation of the temple. And I didn't read that passage, but go back and look at it sometime. Chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. What's already happened? The priests have already offered the burnt offerings night and day. The congregation has celebrated the Feast of Booths, and I think implicit in that, the Passover. They have remembered the first exodus, and they have offered then beyond that thanksgiving offerings, free will offerings to the Lord. This is the very purpose of the building. The very purpose of the building is to worship. So what they do first before they build the building is they come together and worship for sacrifice, repentance, rededication, and acceptance by God. This is what Noah did. He gets off the ark, and the very first thing that Noah does is he what? He builds an altar and he worships. It's the very first thing that Abraham did, Abram, when he comes into the promised land. He does what? He builds an altar there at Bethel and worships. It's the very first thing that Elijah did before he confronted the prophets of Baal. He does what? He restores and rebuilds the altar of the Lord upon which the sacrifice is going to be. Worship precedes building. God's presence, secondly, is not confined. It's unconfined. Take a look at this. We know that Solomon knew and he said, God doesn't live in a building. That's not why we're building this building. <laughs> but look at it in verse number eight. Verse number 8, do you see it? Take a look at it. In chapter 3, what does it say? They came to the house of God. But guess what, folks? The foundation hasn't been laid yet. How can you come to the house of God and the foundation isn't laid yet? Hmm. Well, that's what Abram did. He came to the place called Bethel, which was the house of God, and there wasn't a building there, and he worshiped. It's where Jacob had his latter dream, Bethel, the house of God. Now, that phrase isn't used here. The, bra the, the phrase that is used here is the Baith Elohim, or the Baith Jehovah, in these passages when it talks about the house of God, but it's the same idea. They have come to the place that, where God is present. And wherever God is present, that is the what? The house of God. And then what they do is they build a foundation, and then they build a temple. And God is not only, you know, um, in a building, and, he, and he's not, you know, uh, confined to a space, but God is also not in an object. What is profoundly and obviously, but we have unspoken, we have not spoken about it, absent. Even when they build the temple, what is not in the temple? What was destroyed in the Babylonian captivity, and nobody knows where it is, no matter how many movies talk about, you know, the search for the Ark of the Covenant. It's not there. God is not going to live on top of or in or around and hover on an ark. You see, he's not confined to an object. Hmm. This worship also instilled confidence. You see, they were terrified. If you look at verse number 3, they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and it led them to do what? To offer continual burnt sacrifices. This is reminiscent of the Feast of Tabernacles then, when they sacrificed to God to celebrate what? His provision and His protection in the wilderness. In the Feast of Booths. You see, worship represents also their instilled confidence in God. 
And then worship also unified the people. Look at verse number 9. It says that they stood in the very center of the community, united together, even though they were divided in their response. Some of them were cheering with joy, and some of them were weeping. But they were what? They were united. Now let me ask the question, why the weeping? Well, the ark isn't there. The Shekinah glory of God's not there. There's no Urim and Thummim anymore either, as far as we know. know, That may be the reason. The splendor isn't as great as it was before. You know, Haggai and Zechariah, what do they say? Haggai says, who remembers the temple in its former glory? Some did. Zechariah says, what they're doing here, who has despised the day of what? Small things. You see, the idea here is that this new temple isn't going to be quite as glorious. In the first temple under Solomon, the the foundation of the temple had precious stones embedded in it. They're not there anymore, folks. No matter how much gold and silver Cyrus sent, and later uh, Artaxerxes. The early richness is not there. The early splendor and worship is not quite there. The full line of choristers that David had laid out are not there. It's a diminished crew, folks. Much, much smaller. The musical service of Ezra fell short of that under David and Solomon. There weren't any psalteries here or harps here. You see, it was kind of pared down. It's possibly because the musical skills of the Levites had declined during captivity. Hmm, where, where, where might we see that? Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. How? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You see, probably, I'm not sure about this, Nathan, but I think, and Jonathan, but I think probably some of the skills have deteriorated by this time. The point is, in all of this, it's not as grandiose as it was in the earlier day. The size and splendor, though, may not have been the issue. Because you see, in in Cyrus' original decree, he laid out a plan for the temple. 1 Kings 6.2 describes the old temple. 60 cubits by 20 cubits. And and 30 high, but 60 by 20. Cyrus' original plan, and that's what they are expecting to do as they start this, says that the new temple is going to be 60 cubits by what? 60 cubits. So the plans were to be rather grand. So it may not have been the size and the splendor. There may have been other reasons. Hmm. Their personal situation and vulnerability... You see, Israel had been powerful and prosperous, one of the greatest nations of its day. And now what is Judah? 50,000 strong, 2 to 3% of the Israelites that are in exile. It may have been weeping because of their past sins when they look at the foundation being laid. And it reminds them of the past sins of Israel. And it may be weeping for repentance. We don't know all the reasons. What we do know is there was both weeping and joy. The joy was, and the shout was for for obvious reasons. The restored relationship with God was there. They now have freedom to worship. They have freedom from captivity. Their national identity has been restored, and there is an eschatological hope for the future. There were some hidden reasons embedded in this story. You see, this temple, even if some were weeping because they thought it was going to be as glorious, Haggai says something about that. You see, this temple, 
is actually someday going to be more glorious than Solomon's. Haggai says this, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, we know that what happened. And later, Herod then begins to refurbish and restore it. But folks, that's not what Haggai is talking about. He's saying this second temple is going to see the coming of the real temple of God. And he's going to walk its corridors. Hmm. This temple will be an instrument of blessing all nations. The covenant has been renewed with Israel, and there is a promise that is given that dispersed Israel in Isaiah's prophecy will someday come and flow into it. So let me close with tracing the scarlet thread with three very brief observations. One is the temple. That's obvious. You know, this is 560 years later that we come to Jesus in two incidents, one in John and then the other in synoptics, whether they're the same incident or two, you know, that's debated. I'm one of the few that thinks that it may have been two incidents. But Jesus walks this very house, and it happens 560 years or so after it's rebuilt. And he says, this is a house of what? Prayer for whom? All nations. It's a house of prayer for a new remnant. It's a house of prayer for a coming remnant that Isaiah has prophesied. And when he says this, he quotes Isaiah 56. So we see the thread from Isaiah running through Ezra, then running to Jesus, standing in the temple as he cleanses the temple. And he says this. Also, he doesn't say it, but he quotes from Isaiah. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And here it is. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather of them to those already gathered. So I think it's pretty obvious where the scarlet thread runs here. He literally walked in that temple and made those words come to fulfillment. And the temple, in the Johannine account of the cleansing, makes it very clear that the temple is a typology. That physical temple is really a metaphor. That physical temple is a metaphor who? It's for himself. For when they asked him when he was talking about destroying the temple, he said, no, 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 no. He, he said, what gives you authority to do this? He said, what? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And you know the accusation against him was that he wanted to destroy the temple. But we know John explains to us that what he was talking about, that they didn't understand then, was his own body would be resurrected three days later. There's a second part of the thread beside the temple, and that's the Davidic covenant. It's perpetuated through Zerubbabel, grandson of Jehoiakim, son of Shealtiel, and 11 generations, if you look at the account of Matthew, 11 generations before whom? He's listed. 11 generations before Joseph. Not the biological, but the formal father of Jesus Christ. Hmm. The Davidic covenant, the promise of it was sustained. And then finally, the remnant. Who are we today? You see, we are part of that scarlet thread because Paul says in Romans 11, we are the remnant 
according to God's gracious choice. But the story doesn't end there, friends. The scarlet thread, yes, runs through us. But it isn't finished. Because Paul also says in Romans 9 what's going to happen. That scarlet thread is going to run to the Jewish people. And there is going to come a day when wholesale Jews are going to do what? They're going to return to the Lord through Jesus Christ. So the scarlet thread runs through the temple of Ezra's time. It runs through the remnant. And it, and it runs through the continuation of the Davidic covenant. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you as we come to this end of this study, this part, this portion of the scarlet thread. And we begin next week with looking at the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. We once again, again give thanks for your grace, for your love, for your sustaining and your, your sustenance and support of your people throughout history and your word throughout history and your promises throughout history and your good hand that has accomplished all of this. And we thank you that we are recipients, that we are the remnants of your gracious choice. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.